Church people can get worked up about some funny things once in a while. And if you are just joining us this morning, or if you're new to church, this doesn't so much apply to you. You get to just kind of kick back and laugh at us a little bit. But if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know that sometimes church people, we can get worked up about some funny stuff. There's a guy named Tom Rayner. He's the president of Lifeway Publishing. He's one of the biggest publishers of Christian books in the country. Uh, He does a lot of consulting work for churches, a lot of times churches that are struggling or in trouble in some way. And he's composed a list of the 25 most outrageous church feuds that he's walked into in his consulting career. And I won't share all of them with you because that's a long list, but there are some of them that are pretty funny and worth sharing and also kind of illustrate this point. For example, there was one church that he he walked into to do some work. They were having a a, a feud. He was going to mediate. And the whole thing was over the fact that some people were very concerned about the church serving deviled eggs at the church meal. Deviled eggs, people. Is that really a door that we want to open? And apparently there were more than a few people that were concerned about it. There's another one, and this one is a little more understandable. It was a budgetary matter. Um, You know, whenever money's involved, people get a little more sensitive and a little touchy because we want to be good stewards of the money that comes through the church doors. But this feud was getting bitter, and people were getting angry, and they were yelling because the church budget was 10 cents short. 10 cents. Finally, somebody just got so fed up with all the bickering, they just donated a dime just to shut everybody up because it was that bad. (laughs) My favorite one, though, from the list, and it may also kind of be the saddest one, was a church feud that actually went on for so long and got so bad that the church ended up splitting afterwards. Uh, And the whole thing started because one of the cleaning volunteers hid the vacuum cleaner from the rest of the cleaning volunteers. And that whole situation really just kind of sucked. Get it? Yeah. That's the other thing about church people. You've got to put up with some corny jokes from your pastor once in a while. Church people, man, we can get worked up about some funny things. And it's easy sitting on this side of the aisle, you know, when we're a little removed from the situation, to look at those stories and, and see how kind of petty and kind of silly those arguments are. You know, and we might chuckle a little bit. We might even shake our heads, rightfully so, probably, because these, this is the church. You know, these are people who claim to know God and who follow Jesus, and surely they wouldn't let such seemingly small things cause so much anger. And it's easy to think with that kind of level head when we're removed from the situation. But what about those times when we're not removed from the situation? What about those times when it's happening right now in our lives and we're the ones who are experiencing all of the emotions of those situations? They don't seem so petty or so silly in those moments because they hurt a lot of times or they frustrate or they offend or, you know, they just rub us the wrong way and and they anger us that we've been wronged or slighted in some way by some injustice. When we find ourselves in the midst of these situations, it's a lot harder to look at them and say, this is just silly, I need to let it go. And this isn't just a church thing either. We could look at situations in our families, situations in our circles of friends, maybe even our workplaces where the same rules apply, where we just have a hard time letting go of these offenses or these slights or these frustrating moments. And you're right, we are people who are part of the church. We believe in God, we claim to follow Jesus, and we should respond to these challenges and these interpersonal conflicts in a markedly different way. But the question is, do we? That's where the real rub is. Do we respond differently or do we respond with the same emotions and the same reactions as everybody else in the world? 
That's the question we're wrestling with this morning. You know, we started this series last week. It's called Shine. And the thing with the light, it's all about the light, about walking in the light, being in the light, living in the light. And the thing with the light is that it is distinct and different from the darkness. You may have noticed that there are a few more lights in our sanctuary than normal, even a few more than last week. And I hope you noticed that because light is supposed to stand out. It's supposed to grab your attention. It's supposed to seem different in some way. And if we are going to be people who walk in the light and who shine with the light of God in our lives, that same thing ought to be said of us, that we are different, that we stand out in some way. But the question that we wrestle with is how do we shine with that light whenever people are being a big bunch of jerks? You know, and it's not a fancy question, but it's probably a question that we've all wrestled with at different times. How do we shine amidst the challenges of interpersonal conflict? That's what we're wrestling with, and to help us in our wrestling, we're going to be looking at the book of 1 John this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of 1 John, chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And if you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. You can follow along on the screen behind, or even better, if you have your mobile device with you, why don't you download the YouVersion Bible app? You can read the scriptures there, you can take some notes, you can follow along in the sermon notes that have already been uploaded there. It's a really handy app to have. In any event, we're going to be in the book of 1 John chapter 2. And we need to understand that this book isn't just talking to people who lived a long time ago and who dealt with problems that we don't deal with. It's speaking to a group of people that are dealing with interpersonal conflicts or these challenges, and they're asking the question, how do we shine amidst all these people who are acting like a bunch of jerks? The book of 1 John was written by John. You may have guessed that. John was an apostle of Jesus, meaning he was one of the original 12 disciples. And he was one of Jesus' three closest friends. So when he talks about following Jesus and living for him, he knows a thing or two about what he's talking about. And he's writing to a group of churches that are really wrestling because there, there are people from amongst their numbers that are being divisive. There's this false teaching that's cropping up. And when I say that, I don't mean it's just like differences of opinion. Like it, it is a vast departure from the truth that these people are beginning to latch onto and to, to spread around. And their teaching basically boils down to this. God doesn't really care what you do with your actions as long as you have faith on the inside. That's all that really matters. The outside, you just do what you want. That's not true. And it's causing a lot of division in this church. And when we say that there's division in this church, it sometimes can be hard for us to really appreciate all of the emotions involved in that. But we got to remember that this is the beginning of Christianity and that these people have been together since the start, meaning that they've worshipped together and they've served together and a lot of them have suffered together. Because it's not like the world was welcoming and open-armed to Christianity as it set foot on the stage. There were a lot of philosophies and a lot of religions that really didn't have time for that. And so these people have had to put up with a lot of, of verbal abuse, maybe even uh, physical abuse at times. They have suffered together, and they have held on to one another during those challenges and those trials, meaning that they have been bonded together like family. And now that family is being torn apart, and people are leaving, and people are saying things and doing things that are out of character, and the whole situation just stinks, and it hurts. My wife and I, we, we have some friends that attend a church that are kind of going through a similar situation right now, where it's... It's not false teaching that's tearing people apart, but nonetheless, it's people that have served together and worshipped together and, and sacrificed beside each other for years and years, and, and now something has happened where people are saying things and doing things and make you stand back and say, are you sure you know Jesus? Because this, this all just seems wrong. And it's a painful situation to watch happen, let alone one to experience as your friends that you've known for years and years are now parting ways, and it just hurts to be divided like that. 
But we shouldn't limit this, again, to a church context because this same sort of conflict can happen in our families, in our circle of friends. You might think of a time in your own family or in your circle of friends where something was said or something was done and you experienced that and you thought, maybe it's time for me to just walk away and just leave these people. I have a good friend, just a good, good friend that I've known for years and years, and we were talking on the phone one day, and I had just come off of this long study that I'd been doing at school, and he was curious about it, and so he asked, and I just kind of opened the fire hose, and because I was excited, and I was telling him all this cool stuff that I'd read and studied and found out, and then when he was done, or when I was done, he just started to criticize it and tear it down and bash it, and I was like, I'm pretty sure I just spent the last six months interacting with this material, and you haven't read a single book on it. Who are you? And it was just a frustrating experience. And when we were done, I thought to myself, maybe this relationship has run its course. You know, maybe I'm done with this friend. And eventually we did make up and we're still friends today. But it just goes to show you that all of us have probably had those moments where we find ourselves with somebody who's just kind of acting like a jerk. And we want to shine with the light of God in our lives, and we want to be different, but we don't always know how to do that. John is writing to people experiencing that same question, asking how do we shine amidst this personal conflict and these interpersonal trials. So this isn't just an irrelevant book. This is a book that deals with real-life stuff that we're dealing with right now. So how does he answer this question? Let's just get into it with our text, First John chapter 2. First thing that John's going to point out, he's going to draw attention to this command to love one another. If we want to shine with the light, then we need to love one another. Now, I know that that doesn't seem like a very impressive or insightful realization. It kind of seems really, really cliche almost, maybe. And you may even be thinking, like, I got out of bed for this. Like, I could have read that on a thought of the day calendar. But John never claimed that this was an original idea. And he never claimed that this was a fancy or flashy idea. In fact, he says quite the opposite in our passage. Look at chapter 2. Verse 7 is where we're going to begin. He says, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. And this old command is the message you've heard, or we might say what, that you've already heard. So he says right at the get-go, this is not a new thing. I'm not going to give you some new revelation. This is an old command that you've known for a long time. And what is this command? Because he doesn't come out and say it in our passage. But if we were to keep reading in verses 9 and 10, we'd piece together that he's talking about the command to love one another. And he says that this command is an old command. It's been there since the beginning. And if we go back and we look at the beginning of Scripture, and we look at the book of Genesis, we can see that even though this isn't verbalized as a command, the idea is inherent in almost everything God does in that story. Way at the beginning, he creates this world, and he gives people a special place and a special purpose in this world to know him in a special way. He loves them. And then we get into chapter 2 of Genesis, and we see that, that God has this desire to have a relationship with people, and he desires people to have a relationship with one another, and he, he desires everybody to live in harmony. If we were going to summarize that in a single word, we would call that probably love. That was God's intention from the beginning. But we don't get past chapter 3 of the book before all that starts to fall apart and love starts to get really hard because Adam and Eve sin. They fail to love God the way that they should. And then God comes to Adam and he says, Adam, why did you do this thing? And then Adam fails to love his wife the way that he should. He throws her under the bus and he says, that woman you put here, she made me do this stuff. And I've always thought it was kind of interesting. We never read Eve's response to that. 
And I've thought about that and thought about it. And I'm convinced it's because even thousands of years ago, it just went without saying, Adam was going to hear about that later, right? Like that was going to be an uncomfortable camel ride home. You know, we already start to see that when sin enters the world, loving one another becomes really challenging. And it wouldn't get any easier as the story progressed because we would find new and ever inventive ways of hurting one another. So finally, God hands down the law, all those commands in the Old Testament. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. And we look at them sometime and we're like, oh, that's a bunch of rules. But, but really, these rules were designed to help us love God and love each other the way we ought to. I mean, you just look at the Ten Commandments, for instance, some of them, like don't steal, don't covet, don't murder. Those are meant to teach us how to love one another the right way. Because if you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal their stuff. And if you love your friends, you're not going to be jealous and covet the things they have. You're going to be happy for them. And if you love your spouse, no matter how many times you threaten it, you're not going to kill them, right? That's love. These commands, they're meant to teach us how to love one another. Even Jesus sums up all the Old Testament commands with two statements. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This command to love is not new. And people have always kind of felt the presence of this command universally. That's why every other world religion teaches to love one another and, and why self-help gurus talk about loving people and why like one in ten fortune cookies says something about loving the people around you. It's because this is not a new command. We all know that we ought to love one another. The problem is we don't always know what that looks like. We don't always understand what it means to love one another. And I learned the difference between knowing something and understanding this week. My son taught me this lesson. You know, I've always known it was going to be difficult to transition him from sleeping in a crib to sleeping in a big boy bed. I've known that. But I didn't understand it until we tried it this week. I got a text Wednesday afternoon. My wife said, we have a problem. Uh, Levi had learned how to crawl out of his crib with incredible efficiency. Like, it doesn't take him any time at all. So we had a, a crib that we could convert into a bed. We went ahead and converted it. And, and that night, we went through the routine, put him down to sleep, and I'm tiptoeing out of his room. And I look back, and he's gone. He's like in the corner playing with stuffed animals. And so I go back, and I pick him up, and I put him in the crib, or the, the bed. And I try to tiptoe out again, and I look back, and he's at the diaper cart throwing diapers everywhere. And it went like that for like 45 minutes. Finally, we gave up. We put the crib back together, and we said, just don't get hurt, man. That's all we ask. There's a big difference between knowing something and understanding something. And we all know that we ought to love one another, but we don't always understand how to do that or what it looks like. So God showed us. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, God shows us what it looks like to truly love one another. John puts it like this in verse 8, if we want to keep reading. He says, and remember he said, I'm not giving you a new command. In verse 8 he says, yet I am writing you a new command. It's truth is seen in him, meaning Jesus, and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So he says, I'm not giving you a brand new command. You've heard this before. And yet, in some ways, I am kind of giving you a new command. Because the fullness of this command to love one another, the truth of it, the extent to which we love, is seen more clearly and in a new way in Jesus and the way that his love is changing you. 
The gospel really is a story about the love of God put on display that we learn how to love from. You think about how that story begins. It begins with you and me choosing to sin and to walk away from God, just like Adam and Eve. You know, we said, we're going to go our own way. We've got this figured out. Thanks, but no thanks, God. And we started to walk our own path, not realizing it was a path that led to nowhere good. And then Jesus stepped into this world to come and seek us out and to find us and to save us. And I can't imagine that that was an easy step because you think about how much he had to give up in coming into this world. You know, one day he's in heaven, he's on the throne, he's in his glory, everything is great. And then the next day he is this little baby in the manger in a barn in some podunk town called Bethlehem. And sometimes we forget because of, of Christmas carols and the, the Hallmark cards with the beautiful manger scenes, sometimes we forget that Jesus didn't have like this ideal, picturesque human experience. You know, as a baby, he messed himself and he spat up just like every other baby in the universe. And as a, a teenager, he went through puberty and all of the awkwardness that goes along with that that we would very much like to forget. And as an adult, he had bad days, and he got sick, and there were people that he cared about that passed on. Like, Jesus dealt with all of the junk in life that you and I deal with. He didn't have some special existence that was immune from that. And to transition from being in heaven and all of your glory to dealing with all of that, that's a lot to set aside and to take on and to give up. And then as his life continued, he gave himself away even more fully when he laid down his life on a cross for you and for me and died a death that he didn't deserve so that you and I could have a life that we hadn't earned. Jesus shows us what love is in this gospel story. From the manger to the cross, from beginning to the end, the gospel is a story that shows us that loving requires a giving of self. Jesus shows us the fullest extent of what that looks like. And if we're going to love people the way that God would have us love people and shine with that light and that love, then it will require us to give of ourselves as well. And that's a lot easier to do when we're talking about people who are lovable. You know, when people are kind and they're compassionate and they're courteous, we really don't mind giving of ourselves to love those people because they're lovable. They're kind of like George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. That classic Christmas show is going to be on TV. George is a great guy, if you've, if you've ever seen the movie. He's generous. He looks out for his neighbor. He's kind. Everybody loves George Bailey. So that when George falls into a, a hard time and a sticky situation, everybody in town, they come together and they sacrifice and they give of themselves and they do it freely because George is just such a lovable guy. They're happy to help. It's easy to love lovable people like that. But what about when people are not so lovable? You know, what about when people say things that, that rub us the wrong way or they offend us in some way? Or what if we're slighted by them? Or what if they, they come into our faith communities and they start tearing them apart like what John's dealing with? Or what if they hide the church vacuum and start a huge kerfuffle? Now, what about when people are prickly or their, their personalities just don't gel with ours? What about when people are not lovable? You see, that's the kind of situation we're dealing with here. When people are kind of jerks, are we still willing to love them the way that Jesus shows us how to love them? That's the challenge and the question that we started with. And I think, I think we're ready to hear what John has to say about that now. You see, he would seem to insinuate that in order to shine the light, we need to love people like Jesus, even when it's hard 
And that last part, I think, is the most challenging aspect. If we're going to shine, we've got to love people like Jesus, even when it's hard. Look at the way that John phrases this in verse 9. He says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, and he doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. See, whoever claims to be in the light, what does that phrase mean? Who are, who are these people? Well, if you were here last week, then you already know the answer to this, but if you weren't with us, you can just bounce up to chapter 1, verse 5, and we read that this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness. So those who walk in the light are those who claim to follow God, to walk with God, and to know God, and to believe in Jesus and be his people. If that's the kind of claim that we're making, and yet we fail to love one another like Jesus, even when it's hard. John would seem to say, we're not really following God at all. We're still walking around in the darkness because you can't love God and hate his people. You can't follow Jesus and yet have ill will and, and can't stand your brothers and sisters, these fellow believers in this room with us this morning. You can't love God and hate his people. we got to love one another like Jesus, even when it's hard. And remember who John's writing to. This is not people who are going through an easy time. These are people who are going through a hard time. They hurt. There are people that are causing them emotional pain. There are people that are leaving their fellowship and tearing apart their faith family. And John is saying to them in this challenging situation, you got to love people like Jesus, even when it's hard. And there's a couple reasons why he says that. And the first is because that's the way that God loved us. You know, we're not exactly lovable people all the time either because we sin and God says, I forgive you, but don't do it again. And we say, okay, God, and then we sin again. Just like Adam and Eve, we choose this path that rejects God time and time again, and yet he continues to love us. And it couldn't have been easy to send his son into this world to die for sinners, people that would take his gift and again and again make the same mistakes. And yet he does it and did it willingly, and he would do it again. Because he loves these people in this room. He loves these people in this world enough that he would sacrifice his son. It's not easy to love unlovable people, but God loved us that way. And having received that kind of deep love, it would, it would be kind of hypocritical to withhold it from other people then, wouldn't it? In fact, I think Jesus tells a parable about that. There's this servant who owed an astronomical amount of money. Like he was never going to be able to pay this debt back. And he goes before his master and he begs for mercy. And beyond all understanding, the, the master says, okay, you're forgiven. Your debt's gone. Go, rejoice, be free. And the servant can't believe it. He runs out of the room leaping and rejoicing. And then he comes across his fellow coworker who owes him a couple hundred bucks. And he begins choking him. He says, pay back all the money you owe me or I'm going to have you thrown in prison. And when the master heard about this display, this kind of hypocritical and ungrateful display, he says, you know what? Never mind. You're going to go to jail and you're going to stay there until you pay back every last dime that you owe me. And you probably understand that that parable is not really about money. It's about mercy. We have received incredible mercy and God has shown us patience and he's shown us grace and he's shown us love and God's intention is that we would extend that Jesus kind of love to other people as well that's one reason why John says we got to love people like Jesus even when it's hard 
The second reason is because of something we read in verse 10. If you want to look back at that, he says, Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. Meaning that if we are failing to love one another, there is something in us to make us stumble. We're allowing darkness to creep into our hearts, those seeds of bitterness and anger. We're allowing darkness and, 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 and frustration and, and hatred to just creep in. You know, this, this, this idea that we can hold on to these feelings and these situations, these offenses, because it somehow justifies us or hurts them, it's just not true. We end up hurting ourselves way more by holding on to this stuff than we hurt other people. I heard this story this week. It's kind of a funny story. It's about a couple of towns in India back in 2001. I'd never heard of anything like this, but it makes sense contextually for them. They had a plague of monkeys descend upon their towns, which just sounds crazy. And you think, oh, that's a funny thing. But really, it was super annoying because these monkeys would come into town, and they would bite people, and they would break into houses, and they would steal things. And as I was reading, I was like, oh, that would be a huge problem. And so the people came up with this really clever idea of how to get rid of these monkeys. They took some old milk jugs, like the kind that have the really skinny opening, and they just sat them out, they tied them to the ground, and then they put like some bait, like some candy or sweets or something in there, and they just waited. And these monkeys would come up to the milk jugs, and they'd put their little paws in, and they'd grab the bait, and then they'd try to yank their hand out. But they couldn't, because the hole was too small. And so they would just try to yank and yank and pull, and all they had to do was let go of that thing in there. They just had to let it go, and they'd be free. But they wouldn't do it because the monkeys were so greedy and so stubborn. They just kept yanking and pulling and shouting and making a hoot. So these people would come up, and they'd put the monkey in a bag, and then they'd take it out, and they'd relocate it. They didn't kill the monkeys, don't worry. But they would relocate these monkeys. And I thought that that was such an apt illustration because a lot of times we think, ah, oh, that person, they frustrated me, they angered me, they slighted me, and we hold on to this stuff. And really all it does is trap us like that monkey. And we think we're free, but we're caught. And so long as we hold on to those slights and we hold on to that bitterness and we hold on to that anger, we're just hurting ourselves. We are trapped. That's what it does whenever we hold on to this stuff. We're not shining with the light. We're allowing darkness to come in and weigh us down with guilt and shame and anger and bitterness. There's a danger to holding on to this stuff. A much better idea is just to love people the way that Jesus loved them, even though that might be a little hard. To forgive them, to show them grace, to show them mercy, to show them patience. God didn't create us to be trapped and saddled down with shame and bitterness. He made us to love and to shine. And he sent Jesus into this world for us to love and to shine. And he's calling us to love and to shine. This is the time of year where every voice from, from radio hosts to the, the companies on the television screen are going to encourage us to love one another. Because that's just the season. It's the Christmas season message. And I would add my voice to theirs this morning, but I would, I would tweak that message just a little bit. Don't just love people. Love people like Jesus, even though it might be hard. And for some of us, that's going to involve taking a step this morning. It might mean taking a step towards freedom and letting go of past offenses and choosing to forgive. It might mean letting go of, of that thing that happened years ago in our family that's kept us from talking for so long. It might mean letting go of that slight that my friend is guilty of and, and patching up a friendship. It might mean choosing to love somebody, setting ourselves aside like Jesus, even though it might be hard. 
but it's a step worth taking if we're going to shine and love the way that God created us. For some of us in here, it might mean taking a different kind of step, and we might need to accept the love of God into our lives through Christ for the first time, to accept that gift that he's giving us, to, to accept that freedom and that forgiveness so that we can begin to shine with his light in our lives. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to fill out a connection card on the back of the seat in front of you. On the back left-hand side, there's a couple of options about getting to know Jesus. We would love for you to fill that out, put it in the collection place that comes by at the end of service, because we want to talk with you and help you accept this gift and begin to shine with the light of God in your life. Let's pray this morning. Father, it's not always easy to love people. Um, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes they're challenging. Sometimes they're prickly. But I pray that you would remind us that we at times have been just as challenging to love, and yet you've extended incredible mercy and grace to us through Jesus. And I pray that we would choose to extend that same kind of love to others, even though it might be challenging. And that through these actions, people would see there's something different in us. That they would take note of the peace and the joy and the love that we have in our lives. That we would shine with your light and with your gospel message. I pray that you would use us in this way. Give us the courage and give us the willingness to obey this command, to love one another, to love deeply the way that you've loved us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right. Well, Kathy, because of your shared faith in Jesus and because of your desire to be obedient to him, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There we go. All right. All done. You can stand up and go. So since I'm back here, we'll just go ahead and do the uh, end of the announcements. <laughs> uh, we do just have a...